Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first, friend, what's astonishing you this week? Listen, can I be astonished by two things today? You can be astonished by two things. Thank you. Well, first of all, I am astonished and delighted, and it gives me so much joy to hear that the people of Jamaica (laughs) are requesting, are demanding um, reparations from the British government uh, for their part in the transatlantic slave trade, right? They're asking for 7.6 billion pounds, which translates roughly into about 10.5 billion dollars. the British government, and we forget that the British government transported about 600,000 Africans to the Caribbean to work sugarcane and banana plantations. And when slavery ended, when Jamaica became independent, Britain, the government, paid slave owners for the loss of their property, like millions of dollars, but nothing for these Africans who had lost so much more. Well, and people don't know when we begin to whisper and talk about reparations in the United States, people don't know, white people don't know that the United States did pay reparations for slavery. The United States absolutely did pay reparations for slavery. They paid them to white slave holders. Mm And so, I mean, that, that's just a really important thing to sit with for a minute, that when the United States finally said slavery has no place in this nation founded on the ideals of all men being created equal and liberty and justice for all, when we finally realized that, we felt like, oh, gosh, there was a, this was an egregious wrong, and we have to compensate people for the harm that we've done to them and the people we turn to to compensate were white people. And it literally never occurred to anyone that those who had been enslaved were the ones who were the victims, yes, not the people who had profited for generations from the unpaid labor of enslaved people. And so I think, again, like we're just, it's so hard to see the magnitude of what you've been taught your whole life is is not there. Um, so yes, so Jamaica has made this request to Britain, to the United Kingdom, and? And, um, well, it's probably not a surprise, but of course, members of the British government are saying, reparations are not the answer. Yeah. <laughs> How convenient. Right? Yeah. And I think... I think I remember um, that the former Prime Minister, uh, Cameron, one of his ancestors was a slave owner who received reparations. And so he's been avoiding (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and I think, like, it is so complicated to think about practically how we could do this it's such an overwhelming and scary thing for white people to begin to think about 
And so we think, oh, because this is hard, that must mean that it's not required of us. And I think that the assumption that we have that we don't examine is, well, that can't be necessary because if 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 white governments had to do this or majority white governments had to do this, then all of a sudden we would not have the resources that we needed to continue to live in the way that we are accustomed to living. We might have to live like nations where the governments do not have the resources of, you know, hundreds of years of stolen capital and stolen labor. And so I think this idea of like, well, Great Britain can't pay reparations to Jamaica because it would be this major wealth transfer and then the Jamaicans people quality of living would rise and the quality of life for British people would fall and we think, well, that can't be fair, which then go begs the question of like, okay, then why are we so comfortable with the idea with a reverse, right? Like, mm-hmm. why are we so comfortable with the idea that people in the UK should have a better quality of life than people in Jamaica, right? So, I mean, it's just a really, again, I it's hard for me. It Like, I have, I am a white person, and I get a knot in the pit of my stomach where we have these conversations, and it's important for me to press through that and say, just because this makes me uncomfortable and just because this is scary to me, that's not proof that this is an unreasonable concept. Like that in and of itself, my discomfort and distaste and fear are not reliable indicators that this is not talking about justice. And so, you know, again, I get it. People saying like just doing a transfer of wealth from one nation to another nation, that's not fair or right. I mean, I can feel like that as well. But when I think morally and ethically and I think about the kingdom of God, I think, well, if that concept makes me so uncomfortable, then why am I so comfortable with the disparity when it's in, quote, my favor, right? That, that to me is the issue to sort of say, to acknowledge this feels overwhelmingly huge and terrifying. And then also to sit with, well, why does the fact that the quality of life, that the life expectation for an infant born in India, an infant born in different parts of the on the continent of Africa, like why am I not so troubled by the idea that my child is much more likely to grow up healthy and why have I made my peace with the disparity of wealth that makes it otherwise? And it, it's just hard. So I think having the conversations, I mean, it's not a conversation it's an actual demand. Yeah, and at the end of World War II, um, when nations saw the horrible things done to the Jewish people in Germany, European nations and North American nations were rightfully convicted that something needed to be done because the atrocities were so just right in their faces, right? And um, it's easier for us to hold the transatlantic slave trade at an arm's length, say, okay, that was a really long time ago. Um, And it's easier for us to not see. Right, but I also think the problem with that is you said it's right in our faces. And I would say it was 
white in our faces because the reality is, you know, we look at someone like Winston Churchill and we talk about him as the great liberator and the great defender of democracy and how heroic he was when it comes to fighting back the Nazis in World War II. And and I, I agree. But that same man, when he was deploring, you know, the kinds of things that Nazis were doing to Jewish people, was talking about people in India and people in different British continents in Africa mm-hmm. as being subhuman and as savages and who needed to be beaten back. And, you know, the very same rhetoric of the German army describing Jewish people as vermin and Jewish people as a threat to the fatherland and Jewish people as a threat to civilization, that was abhorrent to, quote, civilized, i.e., majority white nations but you could use that same those same concepts but as long as you applied them to people of color that was just like oh that's how we talked but it's not back then i mean that's winston churchill lived one life so what what he really said and this is hard i mean it's so hard but what you but what you really see happening is britain is britain looking over and seeing germany do to jewish people what the British government did to people of color and saying, oh, you can't treat white people like that. That's inhumane. Mm. And I mean, was the kind of concentration camp built in Germany different than the kinds of camps and systems in on that continent of Africa and in India? Sure. But, but the end results were the same. Extermination, theft of resources, you know, it, it's, it was the same goal. And so I just think it's intellectually disingenuous to sort of say, well, what Hitler did in Germany was different than has ever been done on the face of the earth without asking the question, why is that different to us? Why is what Hitler did in Germany to 6 million Jews different than what the American government and the Swedish government and the, you know, the Dutch government and the British government and the Spanish government did to, I don't even think you can count the number of people of color who were enslaved and mass rapes and experimented on. Like you, I just, we've been taught to put these in separate categories. And I just think it's important for us to understand, I mean, from a spiritual perspective, we have one enemy and and I, you know, I would, you can call that enemy Satan. You can call it the prince of darkness. You can call it powers and principalities. Like, I don't care what you call it, but one enemy. And he has, I mean, he has many uh, weapons, but that's the same weapon. Mm-hmm. It's just that we've been taught that when it benefited, I think white people have been taught that when it benefited us, it's different. And there were mitigating circumstances and, and it was more humane. And it just, it's not like if you're horrified by Nazi concentration camps, and you should be absolutely. Then you should be also horrified by, you know, the the slave camps in Ghana and the Middle Passage, and you know, board Indian quote Indian boarding schools. Native, I mean, like that. There was a concept in this country that we would go to Native families and we would take, take their, their children. children from them. 
take their children from them and put them in boarding schools against their wills and teach them that they shouldn't believe what their parents believed and shouldn't speak their native language and basically we're going to save them from their families and and save oh them by from the, their culture well right but also i mean the idea was you were going to leave a native boarding school and you were never going to go back to the mm-hmm. reservation you were going to live as a white person and and i mean these are people's children and not for nothing but like thousands and thousands and thousands of them died because they were starved to death, yes. because they were not treated for, I mean, it just, and again, we were taught not to know that those things were happening. And then we were really encouraged. I mean, I say we, I mean, I'm, I'm talking as a white person, I, you know, you were sort of presented the information but sort of given a story that like oh well in the time that made sense or that was humane or that was different and I mean it just it's so hard to allow your eyes to be opened up and go like oh this country which I love and these these historical figures that I was taught to see as heroic a a lot of things I was taught about them a lot of admirable admirable things I was taught about them were true and then the hard thing about being human is that good good people, gifted people, anointed people can be tricked by the enemy of our souls into doing terrible, terrible, horrific, evil, violent things. And the way to get someone to do evil is to convince them that it's good. Yeah. Then, now, tomorrow, always. And so I think people, you know, all this debate about rewriting history or demonizing people. I don't want to demonize Thomas Jefferson. I want us to wrestle with the fact that he he really was, I think, anointed with given supernatural wisdom about humanity. But I think that the cultural context allowed him to think that it applied to him and not other people. And I don't want to say he was a garbage human. He wasn't a garbage human. He was a, a beloved child of God who had so many amazing qualities and and, and and did good in the world and also did great evil and also was not a Christian, like proudly not a Christian. And I think, you know, there were Christians in the day, they were a minority report, but there were Christians in the day who, who said, this is not right. And I forget the name, there are founding fathers who said, it's laughable for us to say to the British crown, we have an, you know, a right to liberty in the pursuit of happiness, but then turn around and and say that it doesn't apply to the men that we're enslaving. I mean, you, there are there are historical documents from back then that people have made that point. They just lost, but now we're acting like, oh, nobody could have known that back then. Come on, yeah. people knew. It just was seductive. The wealth and power was seductive, and and I don't say that to say that anyone then was a terrible unworthy human i'm saying that's how frail humanity is and we need to face that truth all of us because we're not any different yeah it seems to me that there is a movement happening among um, people in the african diaspora it says okay we we know we've been wronged and so i think we're going to hear more and more uh, groups demanding uh, reparations, and that is so encouraging. Well, and I also think just asking questions about, because, again, the story is like, well, 
those poor developing countries, we've been helping them. We've been loaning the money. The International Monetary Fund has been loaning the money. And what we, what many of us don't know is the IMF, whoever they are, has been loaning them, whoever them is, right? Like certain people in power or the actual nation, you know, but loaning them money. And now, but the that's presented as if it's, as if it's an act of altruism. Yeah, if, but you it, take, if you take billions and then give a few million, you've taken so much from especially these African countries. Well, and you're not giving anything. That's right. You're loaning millions, and then you're charging interest yeah. and asking it for... So it's yeah. basically like me coming up to you, stealing your money, taking your house, and then being like, Yolando, you can live in my house, but I'm going to charge you rent. Because you don't have any place to live, but you can come on and live with me, but I'm going to charge you rent. Fortunately for you, I just came into a lot of money, so I could upgrade to a bigger property so you can live in my old house. But I mean, like the reality is, why is there such a disparity between the resources that are in the, quote, West and other places? For a long time, we thought like, oh, that disparity is white supremacy. Like white people are more cultured. We're more, we're harder working. We know better. We're more, we're more moral. And that's why God has blessed us and we have greater prosperity. The reality is we have greater prosperity in large part because we participated in these horrifically evil, but in horrifically profitable institutions years of free labor right this is what happens and i think to say like okay if we're going to let go of the myth that white people and western culture is superior then we have to say okay there's still this difference and i can't just say like oh it's because those people over there are savages i have to say like no actually the savage way that people of my ethnicity treated other people has to do with this disparity and then what is my response I don't think it's charity. I think that it must be justice. I don't know how to do that. I'm terrified by that, but I'm trusting that the Lord is going to lead us. Well, it wouldn't be charity if we went into the Louvre in Paris or the National Museum Museum of London or the Smithsonian and say, you know what, we're going to give back artifacts that we took from Africa and um, set up museums in those nations for these Right treasures right that's not that's that's justice and i think that's a thing like it doesn't it doesn't harm the average white citizen of any country well and i just think the whole idea of like and it's very prevalent in the church that like oh we have these resources and we need to go and do charity we need to go and bless people on this continent or that continent i think followers of jesus christ of all people should know like No, what do we have that we don't own? Like, what do we have that we received through acts of injustice? And then to return it is not an act of charity. It's an act of humble um, seeking of forgiveness, right? What did Zacchaeus do when he became a follower of Jesus? Didn't he say something like, Lord, if I have defrauded anyone, I'll give back was it five times as much? I mean, it was... Yeah, I don't know. How, it was a multiple. It wasn't it, just, I'm going to return. It's right. I'm going to return everything I've stolen, Plus, and I'm yes. going to make 
reparations because he why did Zacchaeus do that because he really wanted to be restored to right relationships with his neighbors right and he really recognized that he had done great harm he had used his power and he was part of a system that allowed him to do that Mm -hmm. right it was perfectly legal Mm -hmm. but he said more than I want this wealth now I want to be in right relationship with my neighbors and so what I need to do is not just give back what I took but I need to make a gesture that shows them that I'm sincere and saying I want to be part of the the human community here. So I think I think it's just really hard. And I think we can ask lots of reasonable questions about the how, but I think that Christians of all people need to stop being offended at the idea that justice isn't just an ideal, but something we should actually be working towards. And so I think we can confess being overwhelmed. We can confess to being afraid. We can confess to being sad. But what we have to acknowledge is we are called to be people of mercy and people of justice. And we can't just say, well, I took it, but it's ugly of you to ask it back for it back, right? Like that's, I mean, if we want, if we want to repair the fabric of humanity, then we need to be, at least not be offended by people telling the truth, which is our nation didn't end up here by accident. And it also didn't end up here because we are ontologically less moral than your nation. If we turned on the evening news today, and we heard a story about one nation going to another one and kidnapping people and forcing them into slave labor, we would be disgusted and angry. And we would say, someone needs to do something about that. And that that. actually literally happened with the Chinook schoolgirls, right? There you go. Right? I mean, a group came into a boarding school kidnapped a whole huge group of girls and then, you know, stole them away and sold them off to be child brides. And like, we were all horrified by that. How can anyone let that happen? Someone should do something. We need to understand that that is literally what was happening in the transatlantic slave trade. And I think it's a On question. On a massive scale. Right. And I just think it's such a question. People say explicitly, get over it. And, and I... I mean, I think that that's just a de- it's a deflection tool because it's so hard to contemplate. But like, how long? How long before somebody's death doesn't matter anymore? I mean, that to me is the question. Like, when does it become? Uh, when does the time out up? When is time up for human tragedy? I think again, we need to when we just want to say like, I just don't want to think about that. Fair. I don't want to think about it either. But I, it happened, and not thinking about it doesn't un, undo it from happening. And I think, especially as people who who follow Jesus, we have to be really suspicious of a of a reflex of like, oh, get over it. It happened fifty years ago, a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago. Well, Jesus died two thousand years ago, and that's really still meaningful to us. That's right. So we're an odd group of people to still say the the brutal death of someone doesn't matter after a certain period of time. And every Sunday in many, if not most, of our congregations, we do something called a prayer of confession. Yeah. In which we say, I and we collectively have sinned before God. We are sorry, forgive us, and help us to live in a way that is different. Help us to not only not do that, but to live in a way so that 
what what we've been doing doesn't happen anymore. Right, and I think part of the reasons that Christians, some Christians want to define sin so narrow, narrowly to say it's only about sexuality or it's only about gender roles or it's only about the kind of clothes you wear or it's only about whether or not you let your kids go trick-or-treating on Halloween is because we want to believe that, that that's the only sin that exists and that our our birth into this fallen, broken world, I mean, are we morally culpable, responsible for the things that happened before we were born? Of course not. But we have to live eyes wide open to the reality that we were born into systems that were created and that still affect people today. And we have to not be resentful as followers of Jesus to the cries of the people who are oppressed and saying like, I want a different world. And we have to say us too, because God's shalom and the way the world was created was so that there would be mutual flourishing. So it didn't require the subjugation and degradation of one group of people for another people to flourish. And, and especially for those of us who have been taught by this fallen world that we're on top and that we're benefiting from this system. We have to have eyes to see that like no one is benefiting from the system. Just because I have two color TVs, that does not mean that I, I mean, am better off living in a world where these kinds of horrific things happen. And just because I've been taught that the only way that I can live in peace is for my government to drop smart, smart bombs on school children, I can say, no, I, I reject, I reject that that is true because I have a higher truth and I know where that comes from. So yeah, recently I had a dream. Um, it was really strange, but I was in a gathering of people and, uh, it was, it was like on or close to the 4th of July and there were lots of American flags and uh, the people gathered were, some that I know in real life, some uh, friends from church and some friends from school and just people that I actually know, and then a, a number of people that were just people in the dream. Well, we're in this gathering, and someone called the country something like the great Satan or something like that. And everyone in this group is offended. They're angry. How could this person speak of the country like that? How could they? I was silent, had no expression on my face. And then this crowd turned to me and they asked, why, why aren't you as upset as we are? What, what's up with you? What's wrong with you that you're not angry? And I remember in the dream, there was just a long pause. And I, I was thinking, how how am I going to explain this to them? And I remember the first thing I said to them in the dream was something like, um, you know, I've been, I've been married for a number of years, and one of the things I work really hard to do is to see the world and to see things from the perspective of my spouse. Even when we don't agree, I like to get to the place where I say, I can see why you think that way. I, I get why you see it the way you see it. May not agree, but I can see it from your perspective. To me, that's a, that's a great discipline. I, I love being able to do that. 
And I remember in the dream, I turned to this person who called the country the great Satan. And um, I said, you know, if, if you lived where they lived and you experienced this country doing the things that it does to his country, you would probably have the same perspective. Um, and I talked a little more along those lines than I woke up. And um, I remember when I woke up, I was like, well, clearly I have some anxiety or stress around um, the 4th of July holiday. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I think it's really interesting, again, if we remember that we're followers of Jesus Christ, and so our primary reference point is Jesus. And, and the kingdom. And, and, and one thing that we can see clearly from the life of Jesus is, you know, when a centurion came to Jesus and said, will you heal my daughter? Jesus didn't say, no, you're part of the great Satan and yeah. I hate, you know, and your daughter can yeah. die and burn in hell. And I, like, that was not Jesus's response to him. And, and when the man said to him, Jesus's response is yes, like, let me go to her. And when the man turned to him and said, from my experience in the Roman empire, I know how authority works. And I know that when I say a word, the 99 men in my command do what I say. So I know you don't have to come to my house to tell my daughter to be ready. I know you're in authority. I know you just need to speak and it will be done. And what did Jesus say to him? Did Jesus say, you are part of the great Satan, you rotten, dirty infidel. How dare you know that? No, Jesus said, what amazing faith you have. I have never seen such faith even among the children of Israel, right? So Jesus could differentiate between the system yes. of the empire and its victims, which were not just the people who the world would call, you know, whatever, vic uh, territories or colonies. Jesus could see that this person who was in the Roman Empire was not a human manifestation of that empire, but was a child of God and a child of God with great faith and a child of God who was worthy of having his needs met and requests um, affirmed by Jesus. And so I think we need to be able to see that too, right? We need to be able to say that we can tell the truth about the brokenness of the whole world. Yes. And about, um, our place in the empire. Right. And the particular brokenness of our nation, right? Like we can, we can tell the truth about that, but that doesn't mean that we have to say then that we're all garbage and God's not here and nothing good has ever come from this. Like that it's not this, it's this binary all or nothing thinking, which comes straight from Western civilization and the enlightenment that's killing us. And it has nothing to do with the revelation of Jesus, who is coming to earth and saying two things, both like God's love for humanity is so great that I'm going to come down and put on flesh and live among you. And I mean, God so loved the world. I mean, it's right there. And also that Jesus is saying these things that from our human perspective are intrinsically part of the world and creation actually are not and they are passing away, well, and I'm rejecting which them. Which is why um, Jesus begins his message, repent, right. for the kingdom is at hand. Right. right? So you see this reality, turn, <laughs> turn have a, a change way. of mind, change your life, turn away from this living, this empire living, this empire culture to the kingdom. And that even when John the Baptist shows up and, and gives what I think, and I'm, I'm not mad at this, this is not an insult in my mind, but when John the Baptist shows up and is basically preaching social justice 
and he's not wrong, right? So, and he's calling out the empire and he's also calling out hypocrisy within his own people and saying like, we just need righteous acts. And we, and you know, and Jesus affirms him and he is preparing the way. And, and, <laughs> and Jesus says, you know, John is great and, and no man born of woman has ever been greater. And the least of the kingdom of God is going to be greater than him because John's calls for justice were were right and true and good, and they honored God. And God will always be a God of justice. And the the coin of the realm in the kingdom of God is grace, and it yeah. is mercy. And ultimately, John pointed to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and ultimately, John pointed to Jesus by also revealing that our efforts at human righteousness, no matter how sincere, are insufficient to overcome the evil in the world. That it is only the mystery, the glory, and the grace of God that can do that. And so, you know, we, we it's not that, and I think so many Christians kind of, to the extent they pay attention to this at all, and most Christians will reduce John simply to the ritual act of baptism mm-hmm. so that they can avoid all the implications of his actual pronouncements, right? But, th- you know, but to the extent that they'll pay attention to John's calls for justice and embodiment of justice, they'll say like, oh, well, but Jesus said he's the least in the kingdom, so we need to let all that go. And and it's not that we're called to let it go. It's that we are called to let go of the illusion that we can ever live righteously, but not let, but knowing that we can never live righteously, not use that as an excuse to just do whatever we want and let it go. Like there's that quote about, I don't know where it comes from, but you know, the call in Micah to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God and the call to repair the world is so great that none of, no one of us can ever do it. But the fact that we can't do it doesn't excuse us from the obligation to do what we can do. Well, it makes me think of that place where uh, the Apostle Paul says, um, not that I have already attained the goal, but I I press press on on for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So um, certainly can't do it in my own strength doesn't mean I have an excuse not to try. I just keep pressing on and pressing on. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will use that uh, for God's kingdom purposes. Right. And I just think what what I what I think is even more true than this idea of not using it as an excuse not to try. Because I think, I mean, speaking as an, a white American, I mean, like Americans are all about trying. Hmm. But what what I think sometimes we use grace as, as somehow this like magic bullet to make it seem as though justice that God no longer cares about justice and that and that's what's interesting so like we we would say we'll try to to do charity and we'll try to do all these things and we'll be proud of ourselves for trying to be righteous but also our own unrighteousness or or you know justice also on the other hand doesn't matter to God like almost as if it matters more to us than it does to God and not to understand that God is doing this work and what we want to do is um, do everything we can to be on God's side, to be participating with God in the work instead of resisting God in the work of shalom. And it does not require self-hatred. And it does not require neighbor hatred. That's good. And it does not require being afraid that if you 
do the right thing like reparations, that you will lose everything that's dear to you, right. that the pain, the cost will be so great that you can't endure it. Right, and I think the reality is we've been taught that the good life is found in power and possessions and comfort and safety. And the witness of the gospel is that the good life is not, in fact, found in those things. So when we look at a concept of reparations and we think it threatens power, possessions, safety, and comfort. And we think like, well, how then can we live? And I think part of it is to understand that like, if this is of God, then God is not showing us what is good so that, so that we'll walk into punishment, right? Like if, if this is of God, then it is good, not just for them, whoever them are, but also for, for us. I think it's in Romans where, um, Paul says something like, and then you will know the will of God, and he describes it as good, pleasing, and perfect. Perfect, yeah, yeah. yeah. Friend, I just feel like we've done an hour on the first thing <laughs> I know, that I know, you were astonished by, which is fine. Well, what's the second thing? Today just might be about Yolanda's astonishments. Well, the second thing I'm astonished by is Sunday. We had our first live stream service, and it was it And was your first in-person service. And our first in-person service. And it was awkward. It was imperfect. Um, last night, I was meeting with elders, and we just sat with that verse of Scripture from Zechariah, where it says, Do not despise the day of small beginnings. Oh, um, that's nice. And then at the end of that verse, it's Zechariah 4.10. It says, For the Lord delights to see the work begin. Like yeah. if, if the Lord delights to see this work begin as imperfect as it is, we should also delight in these imperfect things. Let's not be ashamed that, you know, the lighting's off or the audio is off, that it's, it's, it's not perfect, but let's delight that we have taken a huge step of faithfulness for us. And that's not the only one. Uh, so I am just astonished by um, this work that we're doing. It's small, it's imperfect, it's awkward, but we are doing it. Well, I think two things. We were talking on the walk about this balance of saying we don't have to be ashamed of the lighting being off on Sunday. The camera on our live stream, the visual on our live stream didn't start, so the audio was there, but not the visual. And and you know, we don't, we don't need to be ashamed of that. We don't need to apologize of that. We need to care. Absolutely. Like, right. And so yes. I think sometimes you think at like, it. Gotta get better. right. And so to, to have that tension of like, we want this to be as beautiful as it can possibly be. And we want it to be as wonderful as it can possibly be. And we want it to be as effective as it can possibly be. And we care. And we don't just bring our like leftovers and junk to the Lord. Like we bring our first fruits and that, and that's what we're aiming for. But we, we don't aim for it in a place of anxiety and we don't have to apologize for the process. And we know that the, the process is also part of the proclamation, right? That we're a real community of real people who are trying to become something together in the Lord that we weren't before. And, and God doesn't do like microwave instant transformation, at least not always. You don't have to be great to start, but you have to start in order to be great. Right. And I think just this idea of like the world says either be amazing or look amazing or, or or you're worthless and nobody wants to, you know, that's why we have a 
whatever, an entertainment industry full of overnight successes. Like nobody, but the reality is we can be a community where we're saying like we, we've started humbly. It's a, a beginning and it's not just a waste of time until we get to some mythical point where it's perfect. Like all, this process all along the way of becoming is forming us and God is with us in this journey. And, and the whole point of this community is to be in community with God and through God. And well, so this is part of it. And in that same passage of Zechariah, if you read the first 10 verses, uh, it, it also contains that... Um, that well-known place that says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the, the work that we're doing, I mean, we put in effort, yes, but it's it's only by the help of God. So let's enjoy the process because God is at work. And if God doesn't need to do some instant work to make it beautiful and perfect, well, we don't need that as well. Right. And I think, I mean, honestly, to make the connection to our earlier conversation, I mean, how wonderful would it be for us as people of faith to be able to say to the world as we begin to have these grapple with these terrifying conversations about reparation and reconciliation and repair, to be able to say, hey, this is a small and imperfect beginning, but it's in a beginning, right? And if we're starting to have the conversation we can't only have the conversation. We, we can't be satisfied with this, but we also can take a breath and have hope and say, just because we can't see a way forward right now doesn't mean there isn't a way, right? That's why I'm astonished by it, because I see it as a beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I, and I think that's great. And you have hope, as we all should have hope, that we see what God is up to in the world. We see what God is up to in the world. And it's not creating a new set of winners and a new set of losers, right? Correct. And it's not like gathering up the garbage to be burned. Like that Correct. is not the end of the story. Correct. It is about shalom. Right. And so if that is what God is doing, then beginning to name the brokenness and no longer cover it up in lies that are pretty, that that is a that is a start. And I think And worth celebrating. Right. Well, yes, and I think like one of the things I because I do think that most people of good most people are people of goodwill who would say, I I recognize just the deep tragedy of all of this. And if they knew there was a way to repair and flourish together, they would choose it. It's just that the enemy of our souls tells us so constantly and so loudly and with so much authority that there is no way for There's us all to so flourish. Much of the pie. Right? Like we 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 hear that lie so much that we really believe it. But I think if people believed God's words were true, if people believed the Lord, then we would say, like, no, there is a way, even though it wouldn't come from us. And I do think that most humans recognize that like if a human government could fix it, it'd be fixed by now. So and I certainly am not advocating for a theocracy. Like the most dangerous human governments of all are the human governments that say that they're actually divine, right? So I'm not, don't misunderstand me, but I'm just saying like one of the reasons that I think so many humans are despairing or are overwhelmed or angry at acknowledging the issue is not because they actually hate other people, it's because they really believe, they really have been brainwashed by the enemy of our souls to believe that there is no way to repair. There's only way to, like, pass the harm along. 
And so that yeah. that's why and that's why our point is to say, hey, we're at a moment where we can have hope because we're acknowledging the great brokenness in the world. And we believe that the Lord is present in small beginnings and, and we are going to work forward with fear and trembling and press on with how we love our neighbors and tangible, yes. practical, um, sacrificial, mutually interdependent ways. Well, enough of my astonishment. What's astonishing? Well, you? I would just say, and because this is a long space, I'll just I'll just end with the thing that is astonishing me because maybe it's a good buttonhole for for this big conversation. Um, so on Sunday, my um, great friend um, Gail Henderson Belsito, I say, I say great. I I'm not I'm not claiming deep deep intimacy with her, though I I would love it. <laughs> I'm not saying, uh, but I'm saying she's great. She is great. She is just great. And she actually, um, among her many giftings, um, she's a brilliant author and just has done a lot of traveling and she writes, and I believe that her website is called Silvermine. Um, and she just is, is wonderful. And, uh, she, um, there was just a real space of culmination, a place of culmination of a long journey. She was ordained into ministry as a Presbyterian pastor on Sunday, um, she is serving as an associate pastor at Caldwell Presbyterian Church here in Charlotte. And it's a long journey to ordination. It's it's by design. Um, and then her journey has been long because she, um, you know, b- it studied here at Union, which is a, a, a seminary where the course of study is spread out over five or six years. And then she also her original ordination date was last July Mm. Um, because of the pandemic. She decided not to do it online, but to wait and do it in person so she could celebrate with her, with her community, which is so her heart. And I I love it. And so it, um, it happened last Sunday and I, I'm astonished, right? Because the point of this isn't to necessarily say something unimaginable happened because there was no doubt in my mind that Gail was going to be ordained. Um, but I just, it is really important to stop and marvel at, at the goodness of God where we see it, which, I mean, the, the thing about an ordination worship service that is good is, is when it is that, is when it is a time of just not taking for granted God calling people into ministry. And obviously there's lots of different kinds of ministry and no kind of ministry is better or more essential than another. But this particular kind of ministry of serving a congregation, just stopping and marveling at the wonder of that and not just missing the burning bush, Mm -hmm. declaring God's goodness and glory and right in front of us. So it was so beautiful. And um, she, um, I was really honored that she invited me to give the charge to the congregation. And I I have not done that before, and I really, this idea that you were going to go stand up before the congregation and give them a declarative statement of live like this, right? So it's overwhelming, and, you know, who am I, right? Um, And so I was thinking about it, and I was praying about it, and I was really trying to make space to, to really ponder, like, what what do I believe or, or what, and what do I believe that the Lord has showed me about what is a good church? Like why, why church and why do we gather as a community? Sometimes it's hard to even conceive of that because it's just so at the center of my life and my love and 
my experience of God is so mediated through church that, um, but, but what is church and why does it exist? And what, what, what do I believe that the Lord would want to tell this particular church in this next community in this next season? And so I, um, I was actually, um, lying in bed and on Saturday morning and kind of in between sleep and wake. And sometimes I really do think I hear from the Lord better in that space because my monkey brain is <laughs> disabled. Um, and I really believe that God was sharing with me four words for this church, which I think really I then thought are for all churches in this season. I think maybe it's not the Lord. Maybe it's just Kate Murphy. I don't know. But the first word was love. And just this reminder that our first task in the church is not to do, but to be and to love God. Like we gather together to love God and to be filled with God's love for us. And just like that's our primary that our source of identity, of power, of, you know, and, and sometimes I think we just dismiss that idea of loving God as like a, a, a doctrinal point or a theology to understand or like, yeah, yeah, we've got like, no, this is, this is our purpose is to gather together to be loved by God and to sit in God's love. And obviously we can do that all the time, but sometimes the danger of things that we can do all the time is that we end up doing none of them, the none of the time, right? So just this particular time to come together and remember and experience and just like take a posture of dwelling in the love of God. Um, So that was the first word that the church exists to love God together and to be filled with God's love. And the second word was also love that we, we exist as a church to love each other and that we just can't be so, so um, eager to go out and do something right to, to, to demonstrate or to serve or to charity or to like, we can't be so, so have so much energy around doing stuff that we forget that our primary task is to love each other because the battle is won and because anything that really needs to be worth doing done is is done by God and in God's strength and so I think sometimes we're so busy doing stuff and seeing church as a project that we see people as just like resources to be used or obstacles to be overcome and stumbling blocks instead of realizing like no we we are here to be a community where we love one another and and that's our witness that people would say you know, see how they love one another and that that loving takes intentionality and time. And it's not something that you're going to win an award for, right? Like it's not, it does need to be kind of a thing where you're thinking about like, how can I love this person sitting next to me? How can I make them know that I love them? How can I act in love towards them? And it's not going to be something that somebody's going to write a newspaper article about or give you a grant for, right? Like just cultivating a culture of love and letting God do whatever God wants with that. But like, I don't, I can't necessarily solve homelessness in Charlotte. I'm not okay with people being unhoused in Charlotte. I'm not saying that I'm not called to put some energy in that, but the, the, I can't let my, my energy about this abstract thing 
excuse me from the idea of like, I'm being a jerk to the person sitting next to me in the pew, or I don't know the name of that child whose family's been coming here for six months. Like learning that child's name is an act of love. That child's going to think, why does this person, why does this old lady, like, why does she know my name? There's no reason except that this is a community of love and love knows names. And so that is the second word. And then the third word, (laughs) bless somebody in the congregation was like love. And I was like, no, it's not. (laughs) That's great. The third word was rest. And I think I was thinking a lot about our conversation that like we, it's just, it's an act of resistance. It's subversive. It's disruptive to say we are a community that we gather together and on a Sabbath and it's about resting and we're not slaves and we're not God. And we are here to be filled with God's love and to love one another and to rest. Um, And that, you know, there are days, you know, that just, again, you can rest anytime, which means you will rest no time. And so part of what the church is, is should be one more, it should not be one more place where you've got a to-do list 80,000 miles long, right? It should not be one more errand to run. And it's not that we won't participate in ministries, but, but coming to them from a posture of rest instead of from a posture of anxiety and stress, like I, I think that's really prophetic to be a community that announces the world, you know, come and rest here, Mm. you know? And then, and then the last one was savor, um, that this season with Gail as your pastor and with these particular saints in this community, like it won't, it won't last forever. Um, but it, but it is here now. And we should savor it and just not take one another for granted and not think like, oh, I'll catch the next one. I'll catch the next one. I'll catch the next one. I mean, it's fine. Like God isn't up there taking attendance, but this is a gift and it's a table that's set up before us and it won't always be. There might be another table, but not this one. And so just that idea of like love, love, rest, savor. I just, I, I don't know. I, I'm. It helped me recapture the astonishment mm-hmm. I have for being part of a church beyond sometimes just the tasks and anxiety and worry that I carry it's just to say like, no, no, no. Okay. All that other stuff is there. All those other problems are there and I don't know how to solve them and I am overwhelmed by them. But also these four things are, are key and I'm, and, and I am empowered um, to do them and they are in and of themselves, um, generative yeah when i put those four things together what i hear what i see what i sense is the word joy yeah all those things combine to create a life a community a congregation of joy you are enjoying god you are enjoying one another. You're enjoying this moment that you have. You're enjoying a kind of a life of rest that um, strengthens, enables, uh, revives you to do this work um, that you love and serve uh, the God that you love. And so, yeah, it, it all combines to be joy for me. Yeah, and I think also just to have eyes to see that in the midst of such a broken space and such a broken world, I mean... It is so far from nothing that Gail, as a black woman, is leading what used to be a historically white church, right? And it, it is a small beginning. And I mean, I don't know Caldwell like I know the Grove. I love the Grove, and the Grove is an imperfect church, right? So I'm not, I, I'm not presuming that this is, 
easy or comfortable, but also it's real and it is not nothing. And it is something that, you know, all of our ancestors could have only dreamed of. And, you know, the fact that there are, you know, white and black and brown believers in a room just rejoicing and celebrating Gail as a pastor of this community, like that's a first fruit of the kingdom that, that we should not miss. And we Absolutely. should not let the reality of the trauma and brokenness of the world stop us from seeing that like the kingdom is breaking through. It is breaking yeah. through and, and we need to rest and savor it. And so, yeah, that's, that's it. When I, well, I guess we're all I astonishment. We're, done. we're, we're all done. astonishment. We're all astonishment. Today. It's the all <laughs> astonishment agenda edition. This is great. Um, hey, thanks for listening to us. And if you want to um, hear more and see more and participate more in what God is doing through Yolando um, at Derrida Presbyterian Church, you can go to their website, deridapres.org. It's D-E-R-I-T-A, deridapres.org. You can join them for worship on Sundays in person or on their live stream and you live Facebook live and you can um, listen to um, catalog. You can listen to the catalog of Yolanda's sermons on the Derrida podcast, which is at the Podbean website. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at the Grove, you can go to our website, thegrovecharlotte.org. You can join us for worship Sundays at 10 in person um, or on our live stream, which is on Facebook, The Grove Charlotte, or um, you can listen to um, previous messages at The Grove at our website, um, The Grove Church, sorry, at our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast, which is on iTunes or wherever wherever you get your podcast. So thank you all so much for listening to us, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>